I'm Afshan Ratansi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE, which has one of the fastest growing economies in the world. But if you're in a NATO nation country sanctioning yourself from energy and tech, what now for you, given your economic clout against Russia, let alone China, is being soundly defeated on the world stage? One of the greatest chroniclers of self-destructive Anglo-Saxon capitalism is the author of Planet Ponzi, published years before even the US-backed coup in Kiev, let alone Russia's response, Mitch Feierstein, who somehow still isn't running the Fed or the Bank of England, joins me now from New York City. I presume, Mitch, you're not uh, head of the Fed yet because you are speaking to me from New York. You spoke to me in London last time. Um, just yeah. better check that because uh, people... Yeah, absolutely. I'm in New York, still not head of the Fed. I think that they've got a guy sitting there that is about to explode the global finance as we know it today because Janet Yellen was promoted after receiving $7 million from the big banks to be inserted into the uh, position of secretary of uh, treasury secretary well for Joe Biden. And what a pity. I thought you were going to tell me interest rates next month. Anyway, let's get straight to uh, the chase here. I saw a tweet from the writer Caitlin Johnston, uh, uh, has many followers on Twitter, saying the U.S., the writer, she's a writer, saying uh, the U.S. healthcare and infrastructure system, you must be watching it in New York there, must be phenomenal given how much Americans can afford to spend blowing things up. I don't know whether she meant the Nord Stream. Take us back to Planet Ponzi and, uh, and how broke uh, is the USA? Well, it's incredible, actually. Yeah, the system here in New York is breaking down because they have busloads of people coming, you know, the um, open borders in, in the South. They're busing people in here, and there are just uh, tens of thousands of people showing up here every week and every month. So the population is being overrun, so it's a bad situation. The debt situation in Planet Ponzi, welcome to Planet Ponzi. The book is is about the credit crisis. I wrote it back in 2012. It's more relevant today than it was back then. It's a historical document. I know that we're trying to destroy traditional norms, values, history, religion, and cast it aside because history begins today. But the fact that the uh, people that I was advising didn't jail bankers because fraud was committed in, in accordance with what Alan Greenspan said after the crisis, who was a former uh, Fed chairman, Federal Reserve chairman, that caused all these problems by creating the easy money and negative interest rates. So this document will survive everything. And what they did is they played prey and delay, uh, deny and lie, and kick the can down the road with the systemic banking problems that we see. And they're manifesting themselves uh, today with Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse, because there are there's still a lot of rot out there. But what's happened is we've actually gone the wrong in the wrong direction for businesses. We've we've gone woke and we've placed a high value on identity politics and using your gender identity as a means to obtain employment now rather than a meritocracy-based system where what you achieve and what you can produce is a good thing. And that's why... Well, some would say the dichotomy is identity versus class because clearly yeah. the poor have uh, graphs and statistics show how the wealth transfer from the poor to the rich has occurred. But I just want you to, if, if uh, some people haven't read your book, just very briefly explained uh, and remind us who Ponzi was and what is a Ponzi scheme and why all those major banks whose analysts uh, we can watch on all NATO nation, mainstream, so-called mainstream media, uh, giving us advice and telling us about debt ceilings and whatnot, how they're all part of that system. Right. Well, that's part, you know, that's groupthink echo chamber stuff. Now, my book 
you know, is, as I said, it's just as relevant today, if not more relevant today than it was when I wrote it, because, you know, basically a Ponzi scheme, the, the original Ponzi, Charles Ponzi was trading in postal stamps or postal receipts, but he was taking in lots of money and he was guaranteeing returns, but a, a traditional Ponzi scheme or pyramid scheme, what it does is you pay some of the investors back with new money coming in and you spend away all the money. So there are no real returns. I mean, Bernie Madoff was probably committed the second largest Ponzi scheme in the world besides Sam Bankman fraud or Sam Bankman freed, I'm sorry, who was the cryptocurrency person that uh, actually stole $10 billion in customer funds. And, and now he's relaxing at his parents' house in California and didn't really pay any bail. But I think because he contributed, um, he was the second largest contributor to the Democratic Party's 2022 election cycle. That's probably why he's not being prosecuted yet for conducting the largest Ponzi scheme in the history of Ponzi schemes. So a Ponzi scheme is when you when you just take the money and spend it recklessly. Now, what I refer to as Planet Ponzi is the massive amount of government debt around the world. So they've printed hundreds of trillions of dollars in guarantees and hundred and and. Uh, debt. The debt can never be repaid. So the debt situation is what you asked me. I would estimate the debt is close to $300 trillion in America, in the USSA right now. Uh, um, I think that the number that you get, the headline number that everybody talks about is a $31 trillion number. But that $31 trillion number doesn't include Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, it doesn't include all of the legally binding obligations the government has to pay. And now Social Security is not a benefit. It's it's kind of like a pension fund. So I, I paid into that system for my entire working career. So I'm entitled to be paid that money. That's my money. But the governments have spent that money. That money's gone. So they're expecting a lot of new entrants into the market to pay out people, the older older people leaving the market like myself. So that's what their their expectation was. So that's a typical Ponzi scheme. But if you read, they have to publish a, a report every year, the Social Security, and I reference that in the book. They're, they're insolvent pretty much. And I think within the next five years, they're going to be insolvent. I don't know where they're going to get the money. They'll probably print it. And that's why we have um, record inflation around the world right now. And I, I would say that the less, um, the, the less, the, the smaller countries are going to hurt worse from the inflationary numbers because the bigger economies, the G7 economies, are exporting their inflation to other countries. But you know, we can get into the talk about U.S. dollar hegemony and what's going to happen with that um, next. Yes, as, um, as countries uh, say, enough is enough, uh, arguably. But of course, uh, there are dangers of likening it to a grocer's shop, as Mrs. Thatcher did. Joe Biden immediately likened the U.S. debt ceiling to something from family finances because confidence to be able to run. Ponzi schemes, or if you don't mm -hmm. agree with uh, your thesis and say this is just the wonders of uh, global capitalism, uh, this is about confidence. You know, it's okay. not balance sheets, which you say are all important. How important and critical is the media in being able to play that confidence, uh, which is the minute confidence is lost, according to uh, your book and, and your ideas and to any right. Ponzi scheme is, uh, that's it, right? It all falls down like a house of cards. Right. Well, you know, the best example of that is the, the Bank of Japan. I mean, you know, and, and I mentioned the Bank of Japan in the book, and I talk about the Bank of Japan. Kuroda son, Kuroda son, who just um, retired, and now a new academic has come in, who's, he said, I've got even 
more experimental monetary policy. Kuroda, during his reign, I think back in 2015, on the front page of the Financial Times, you can find it. And like I say in my book, don't take my word for any of this. You know, I do an in-depth analysis because I was sitting at ground zero in London, uh, one of the biggest funds in Europe, when it when it, the collapse happened. So I detail every aspect of what happened more so than anybody else from an insider's perspective. So getting back to Kuroda-san, he said at a meeting, he said that he used Peter Pan as an influence for his monetary policy. And there's a picture of Peter Pan. And somebody said, could you elaborate on that? And he said, yes. Well, everything is okay when everybody believes that you can fly until they stop believing that you can fly. I mean, he actually said that in a meeting in the picture of Peter Pan. So the problem with the Japanese economy and, and why I've been warning that the West is turning Japanese, I really think so, is that what, what's happening is that um, Japan the vapors. Right, <laughs> purchased all of the bonds in the bond market because basically they don't sell their bonds externally. The debt is held by pension funds, which they jam into the, the, the postal system that holds most of the pensions in Japan and, and make the banks buy the, the, uh, the debt there. So the debt is contained there. And then they came up with this crazy idea of yield curve control. Then they started buying all equities. So equities can go a lot higher. Here's, here's the quandary I have in Japan, and I think that you really have to watch very carefully what happens with the deterioration of their currency. They can either save their bond market or – this is my view. They can either save their bond market or they can save their currency, but they can't save both. And the people who know how to uh, trade those two markets will be very well rewarded because I think that's going to be a signal as to what happens in the West. Well, yeah, but I think – you know how uh, peculiarly sickening some might have found uh, the fact that Hiroshima, a former atomic bomb site, was the G7's location. But Japan uh, still has the most of U.S. Treasury debt, $1.1 trillion. You know how carefully China's had to tread with uh, divesting itself of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Treasury bills and debt. I mean, what, what, what should Japan do? It can't just uh, dump $1 oh, trillion dollars worth of debt on the market. Yeah, but China has that. China has over a trillion worth as well. So I mean, it official figures are eight hundred and seventy-six billion. Yeah, but, right, but it's it, it depends. It depends how much how much you owe somebody makes them either a creditor or your partner. And when it gets to numbers like that, they're your partner until you can sell it, and then you can do whatever you want. That's why you know you don't have to worry. There's still leverage. They have a lot of leverage in that. So what happens with that? I mean, it's interesting that you bring up um, Hiroshima. And you know, I was a bit confused about that the theatrics in Hiroshima because I didn't I didn't realize that participating in all those meetings you had two heads of the EU. I didn't realize that they were G7 members at a G7 meeting. I didn't realize that the EU was admitted to the G7. I just thought that it was the heads of seven countries. So you know, the photo opportunities, the propaganda. I mean, it becomes a little bit nauseating for for most news uh, consumers because it's curated in accordance with the narrative that they want to put out. So. The first thing that, you know, I can give you a, a quick thing. I was at a wedding over the weekend and I went to it and there was a person there that absolutely had no idea what they were talking about, geopolitics or economics. It was somebody's wife. And I said, look, you need to go home here. I'm going to go tell you, go, in, go home, go around your house and unplug all the TVs and then take a pair of scissors and cut off the plugs. Because obviously you're watching something really bad and it's giving you woke mind disease because it's just the... 
in America, I think people are just addicted to television and they just watch and believe anything that they say. Because I asked them for a reasonable explanation of where they got the the data and facts behind what they were telling me. And they couldn't tell me. I said, well, you know, if you if we do A, this is what is going to happen. B is going to happen. And this is a bad outcome. So we've got to look at where we are right now and how we can move forward. And unfortunately, the media is absolutely dishonest in what they are, are political activists. And they, they are practicing uh, journalistic activism rather than reporting both sides of a story and letting people un us decide what they want to do. They're telling people what to think. And that's the same thing with this crazy BBC verify and Ofcom and the whole shooting match. Our ministries of truth, which is a danger. It's the biggest existential threat to democracy in our lifetime, what's going on right now. Mitch, I'll stop you there. More from the 2019 UK Brexit Party candidate and author of Planet Ponzi, how the world got into this mess, what happens next, how to save yourself after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still with Mitch Feierstein, former hedge fund manager, author of Planet Ponzi and 2019 UK Brexit Party candidate. BBC Verify, uh, which is a new initiative, apparently, by alleged uh, British intelligence asset-linked uh, uh, so-called journalists supposed to verify the truth. We, unlike you, recommend people watching television outside the European Union because this is globally uh, broadcast. But as you say, the nature of propaganda is useful in, uh, in all of this. Um, what about uh, how uh, able... EU populations, British populations, the United States populations are able to cope with the levels of degradation of infrastructure at home and the high, coupled with high inflation. Uh, we're not seeing uh, the kind of civil unrest we saw during the Thatcher-Reagan years when inflation was up uh, past 25% or so. I mean, wh why, why is that? Or is that related to the propaganda model you're outlining? Well, you you've got a couple uh, a couple issues there that I can address the highest uh, the highest inflation rate ever in the history of America I think was 23 percent in the 1920s um well I think we're probably close to 20 percent on the real inflation rate but the way that they calculate it today obviously they retrospectively create those numbers why are we not seeing civil unrest yet I think we will see civil unrest and I think it's a gigantic problem that nobody has dealt with the separate issue is what we have is stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism. I don't know if you know what I mean by both of those, but I'm happy to explain them if you give me a minute. Go ahead. Which is okay. Well, what we have is it's like a Harvard Business School case study. It's it's of the ideological war that's going on right now between the two of them. And and the 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 uh, thing is, if we use Bud Light as an example, and Alyssa um, Heischenschild. Who, who did a video. And Other said, beers are business. available and given them in, in the Middle East, uh, non-alcoholic ones yeah. too. Right. But she said, I'm a businesswoman and she was dripping in arrogance and entitlement and had a you know big rainbow and a unicorn behind her. And she said, you know, I'm a Wharton graduate and a Harvard graduate. And this is the woman that put uh, Dylan uh, uh, Mulvaney the trans influencer on to say, well, we want to be an inclusive brand and we're going to shift the tone because this is a bunch of out of touch frat boy humor. And now this cost Anheuser-Busch $10 billion in market cap. She destroyed $10 billion in market capitalization with her wokeness, right? 
And then she's saying, well, no, it was not really the leading brand. It was the leading brand. And the reason why the brand declined was because of the, the advent of different entrants into the market. You have a record number of microbreweries and different types of beer that entered the market in the United States. So there was competition, but Bud Light was always the biggest brand. And the reason why it lost some of its headspace is because other participants in the capitalist system came in to compete with them. So it was more of a capitalism thing than, oh, it's it's a bunch of out-of-touch frat boys. Now, who was really out of touch? You have somebody that graduated from Harvard that's never been wrong and graduated from Wharton that's never been wrong that actually blew it up. She's still employed there and she will be. And I don't think they should fire her. But I think that what we need to learn is that boycotts actually work and how powerful the consumers are. You see, I know uh, Ralph Nader said this uh, and, and was successful when, in some ways uh, as regards consumer boycotts. But, I mean... You know, uh, Coca-Cola, uh, we know, uh, was uh, alleged to be uh, operating all sorts of uh, nefarious uh, practices in the developing world. It, uh, it doesn't work, does it? Well, I think I think it has. Coca Cola denies that, anything wrong, by the way. Well, no, I, 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 I look. I think that a lot of these companies are doing the wrong things in a lot of countries, and I think that Big Pharma is doing a lot of things wrong in these countries. But I think the culmination of people being lied to and and having politics jammed down their throat. Yeah, but they have here. power, and you outline it in your book uh, about right. the uh, the fact that uh, the politicians in Washington and the politicians in European Union countries are largely, and they would all deny that, uh, basically bored, might as well be bored. Um, just, we have to move on just a, a bit quicker uh, right. to, to war and how you, uh, how you see the war in Europe and whether lobbying by uh, multinational companies again is to the fore there against the interests of the peoples of Europe and the United States. You mean in terms of what's going on in Ukraine and the mm. conflict? Well, I, look, I think that that's a misguided conflict. And I think that, you know, once again, the media is 100% to blame for 90% of this. I think I think this war should have never happened. And I've done a lot of interviews since the beginning. And uh, Boris Johnson scuppered the peace talks in Turkey in March 2022. And had, you know, security been assured, none of this, we wouldn't be where we are today and there wouldn't be 400,000 odd dead Ukrainian soldiers. But people and, are making money out of this war. Well, that's, that's the point. The point is, is that the military industrial complex sells trillions of dollars in weapons of war throughout Europe to restock the stuff that blows up and it doesn't matter who dies. And you know, Dwight David Eisenhower on when he left office warned about the military industrial complex gaining too much power. And you know, you've got a guy in the form of Lloyd Austin, who's a secretary of defense who needed dispensation to get into that job, who is a Raytheon lobbyist. So he was making a nice chunk of change from Raytheon. Now, how much do you think he's going to get paid when he leaves? What What's it in his interest financially? Might be worth interest? lingering on that. So every Patriot missile battery <laughs> that we see being blown up, Lloyd Austin, the boss of the Pentagon, earns money for well, restocking them. I, I, I don't know if he does, but when he gets out, I'm sure that he'll get favorable treatment and a job, right? Because, and it's the same thing with the $5 million, the $5 million in fees that Boris Johnson got. So, I, you know, I still don't know how he got paid in months since leaving office, uh, number 10. He got paid $5 million. It's public record. You can look it up that he got paid. I think in a lot he of had a rich friend, actually, to do with uh, okay. digging companies, and he denies all wrongdoing, obviously. Uh, how I didn't say it's wrongdoing. We were... <laughs> 
<laughs> we were mentioning confidence. Um, so sanctions obviously haven't worked, but how much money has been stolen from Russia, Venezuela, by the Bank of England? And what confidence does that mean across the global south about being able to deposit funds in the European Union, Britain, or the United States, which presumably is a core element? I mean, in a sense, we're talking about confidence all through this interview. Uh, what, what has it done to damage confidence uh, sanctions you've got, alleged theft? But you've got a you've got a you've got a whole host of issues there that you've got to unpack one by one. Now, you know, you have the issues with the Russian central bank where the money was seized. Now, central banking was always sacrosanct and, and they were immune from any kind of uh, sanctions, prosecution, persecution or seizures of funds. So that obviously, you know, out of some dictate that somebody made, they decided to freeze those funds and take them. So what is that? I mean, that's the same thing that happened with certain banks where they have sanctioned deposit confiscation. So how does that play out? I mean, it doesn't play out well for the property markets for foreign investors in any of the countries that were willing to undertake those um, draconian methods to seize assets from people that were not directly attached to this war. I mean, just because they had a Russian last name, a lot of money was seized. And, you know, that's not right in any any part of the world. Or, and it's not going to instill investors or give them confidence in investing in those countries. That said, you know, if we go back to 2019, uh, end of the year, I did several interviews and, and people were asking me what I thought the, the next decade would hold and what my biggest prediction would be. And I said, in the next decade, we will see the end of US dollar hegemony. So as the reserve currency usually runs in cycles of 100 years, the US became the reserve currency in America in 1913, when the Federal Reserve incidentally opened up. And I, I said, you know, if you look at the decline in the value of that currency, it's probably 98% since, since its onset, and it's eroded away to almost nothing. So I think that there's structural problems. And we have been seeing this for more than just during the um, Ukraine-Russia war, which is, in, in, in effect, a proxy war between the United States and Russia. And NATO is insignificant. NATO is really a figment of people's imagination. They don't have any real troops. So, you know, this is a war between America and, and Russia. And I think that it, it should be settled. I, I think that, you know, nobody benefits from war except the military industrial complex and the politicians who are getting, you know, filling their pockets with cash. We, we had an Obama special we had an Obama special advisor, Council on Foreign Relations man, Professor Charles Kupchan, who said twenty sixty before this de dollarization dream of the global south is going to occur. How carefully does China and, and Japan, I suppose, have to and Britain has six hundred and fifty five billion have to start removing Belgium, Luxembourg, Ireland, Cayman, these are the top ones, start removing their uh, US Treasury uh, bills so they don't destroy themselves. And how, what timescale do you have? A 2060 before people start putting things in currencies other than the 2060. dollar? Look, I don't think 2060. I think, I think it's, it's before the end of this decade. 2040. How about that? But, but, no, no. But again, I, think, I mean, I think, we've, I, we saw Credit Suisse, as you mentioned at the beginning. I mean, I, it is quite amazing how the uh, so-called mainstream corporate media have tried to uh, make the population ignore some of the largest bank failures since 2008 and in history uh, this mm -hmm. year. Uh, how many more banks are going to go bust this year then, let alone the de-dollarization, which will create new well, formations right. of banking in the global south? Yeah, it's th what they're doing, they're putting, they're putting lipstick on a pig and telling you it's a supermodel. 
So, I mean, has that ever worked in history? No, it hasn't. How many banks? I have a list with 225 likely candidates to go bust. And I think that I think that a few hundred is a is a good number. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean you should run to the bank today? Probably not. But you know, I, I know that they're not that FDIC is pretty much bust, so they're gonna have to print more money. Any way you look at this, this is gonna be highly inflationary and gonna have ramifications on the US dollar. So this is a, a huge problem that nobody there are no adults in the room anymore that's the problem and you can't trust any information source you're getting you know the you you have to be able to do your own analytics on this as i've been doing for my 40 plus year career and i'm i'm pretty negative on the banks because you know the, if you go back and look at what happened with silicon valley bank the real reason behind that is a lack of leadership and a lack and i said this on an interview in the uk in london the day that silicon valley bank went down i said that the the problem that caused this failure is a lack of leadership and a lack of enforcement of existing regulations. And I think the examiner said, oh, the reason was a leadership issue and a lack of enforcement of existing regulations. So, you know, I can see what's going on. We did business with that bank. I pulled everything out of that bank in 2017 after meeting with their top people several times. And I said, these are the most, they have, they're absolutely clueless. So the Federal Reserve is the big problem. And this is what I got at, at the top. Except I mean, that those in the, sorry to interrupt, we're running out of time. Uh, those in those yeah. elites will have read your book, not as a warning, maybe as a manual, uh, just finally about commodity price manipulation. Surely they oh. can, what's to stop them from uh, increasing? I'm not talking about Trafigura, which uh, deny any kind of charges, according to the DOJ. I'm talking much more generally about commodities, which are so crucial to everyone's daily bread and, uh, and milk and, and butter. Uh, how, how do you expect them to use your book in a malign way to realize the necessity uh, as regards inflation, as regards civil unrest, in terms of manipulating the price of commodities? Well, look, I think I think what they need to do is obviously if something's broken, it needs to be fixed. And this has been broken for quite a while. And what they're doing is repeating the same cycles. They're going to the same people who broke it for a solution. The people who are in those jobs are, are not getting paid enough. And it makes them susceptible to taking backhanders. And it makes them have very bad ideas. And what we're doing now with, with what I've seen in society and sent the mass censorship and uh, the, the oligarchs of Silicon Valley determining what you see, when you see it, or what you don't see and hiding what they don't like. Like I'm censored, I disappeared from LinkedIn. I'm on Substack, so if you wanna read my stuff, go there. But I mean, it's, it's a difficult place when things are massively censored to try to get a word out to people. They need to get better experts in and they need to, we need change. We need to have our freedoms restored and we need to have, stop have having our will and uh, free speech and thought suppressed because the only way a society can move forward and advance is if we can have a uh, civil society that has reasonable discourse and debates, open debates with alternative viewpoints, but that's not allowed anymore. If you have an alternative viewpoint that somebody doesn't like, you hurt my feelings and I'm going to get you canceled. So, you know, you can't have what's going to happen to society. It's, it's more of a dictatorial a tyranny. I mean, it's a dystopian hell that we're headed towards at a rapid pace. And I think that we need drastic change to do this, to, to get out of where we are today. On that happy note, I guess uh, commodity prices, they might go down. I don't know. You'll have to come back again and tell us. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me.
And that's it for the show. Remember, we're bringing you new episodes every Saturday and Monday. But until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country and head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you soon.